0: You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In this episode, I'm talking to Lawrence Tan, one of the talented artists of the Sydney Lunar Festival. Lawrence designed the Ox Lantern, an incredible inflatable lantern in eye popping silver, red, and white. Lawrence was born in The Hague to Chinese Indonesian parents from Surabaya. At the age of 12, they migrated to Australia, and while Lawrence first got started in music playing in bands, he eventually turned to studying art. His art practice has incorporated ceramics for many years, painting, and now innovative 3D installations that are seen in exhibitions all over the world. Lawrence splits his time between his studios in Wollongong, Las Vegas, and Beijing. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lawrence.
1: Thank you, Valerie.
0: All right, now let's just start with what does Lunar New Year mean to you?
1: Well, you know, because I've lived in Beijing for twelve years and witnessed Chinese New Year at point blank sort of level, mm. um, and of course I've been in Vegas for a little while and trying to watch what uh, what they do with Chinese New Year, and I'm really impressed by how much ground uh, Sydney has covered with their uh, Lunar Festival. You know, I mean Vegas is you know Vegas is a very festive city, so yes. you know. It's rather hard to imagine that uh, what Sydney is doing, what Sydney has been doing, has far um, kind of outweighed what uh, Vegas is capable of. But it's catching up very quick. As as you know, you know, all the cities are starting to take the new year, Chinese New Year in particular, very seriously. So mm-hmm. it's all very colourful, festive, and it's it's, it's a, you know a time of the year when the cities comes alive, and it's something to look forward to.
0: Now, you, of course, you've created and you've designed the amazing show-stopping ox, which, the Ox Lantern, which is going to be situated in 2019 outside Cadman's Cottage. And I want to unpack that a little bit more and talk a little bit more about the ox. But just to give people a bit of context, Lawrence, when did you first come to Australia? How old were you?
1: I was 12.
0: And where were you, like, I understand that your great-grandparents were from China, but they migrated in the late 1800s. But where did they migrate to?
1: Well, they migrated to Indonesia, which uh, they came from Fujian, which apparently, you know, I'm still uh, rummaging around for uh, proof and, you know, uh, facts. But uh, Fujian, which is normally a very uh, prosperous province, is south of China. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's Fujian, which is next to Guangdong, really, you know, which is Canton, the old Canton. Yeah. Uh, It went through a bit of a famine, you know. It's actually, from what I know, it's known for its uh, uh, seal stones, you know, the things they make those chops out of, the stamps, Mm. and for, of course, seafood, you know, but uh, apparently in that particular year or that group of years, there was a bit of an economic downturn or a hardship and you'll see that uh, a lot of people from that area migrated about the same time to various parts of the world. Well, my great-grandfather came to Indonesia, was then under uh, Dutch East Indies. Yes. And so my, down to my parents, which is two generations later, they were both born in Surabaya, East Java, in Indonesia.
0: Oh, yeah, my grandmother's from Surabaya as well. Um, So you – but then you were born in The Hague in Holland. Tell me how that happened.
1: Well, it's funny because uh, my dad was the only one in the family who was not interested in business. You know, the others were in – you know, they had either bakeries or cinemas or something like that, and he was the only one that – but he did economics. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He didn't stray too far. And what happened was he did these various uh, postgraduate ships in uh, Manila and uh, various places, but his, he did his doctorate in Germany. So basically, uh, we were stationed in that part of Europe for quite a while. And that's how, in fact, uh, I have a sort of godmother, or she she's passed away now a long time ago, mm. in Holland. And we used to live in Holland while he was studying in Germany kind of thing. That's, I guess, how it came about. So I was born in... The Hague, which okay. is, uh,
0: yeah. Sorry, I no, didn't mean to interrupt you, go on.
1: Uh, no, well, the Hague, I, 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 the last time I went there was 1990, a long time ago for my birthday. It's a, the capital of Holland, like like Can- Canberra is for Australia, and it's by the beach, you know, by the sea. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, I'm, I'm dying to go back, but, you know, it's very difficult for me living in three different places, I virtually cannot travel any, anywhere else unless, unless it's an invited exhibition or something, project.
0: Yes, I don't know how you do it, but I want to talk a bit about that as well. Now, but you, you're born in The Hague and then you're 12 years old when you come to Australia. Where did you live and, and what was it like at the time in Australia? You, you know, it, it must have seemed like such a foreign place to you.
1: Well, we came from – we actually – my parents went back to Indonesia to look after my father's sister, but we stayed only three years. That's when Sukarno, you know, made Mm. Indonesia and the nationalism came in, and that was like serious business. And uh, I think the Chinese were having the worst worst of it, you know, in terms of getting – equal treatment and that sort of thing so my parents thought it was not a good idea to stay and so we moved to Singapore for about two or three years and I went to at that time I was still my Dutch was my first language so I went to Dutch kindergarten in uh, in Singapore but then uh, I went to Anglo-Chinese school and I learned English so English is very much a learned language and then we moved to Melbourne uh, you know where I went to uh, uh, lower primary and primary school. And, and even, what, were, yeah. what
0: was it like in Melbourne? Like were, were, did you feel that you were different or did you slip easily into Australian life?
1: No, it was di- I, would, you know, I would say it's difficult and it still affects me the way uh, we were kind of treated as, uh, uh, well, not only foreigners but really un- it was a white Australia policy at the time Mm -hmm. So, apart from a few close friends, um, you know, there was a little bit of felt, I was only young, but I felt it anyway, you know, antagonism towards, uh, well, Asians in general, but, you know, in in fact, the Italians and Greeks were the previous, uh, uh, I suppose, lots of people who had a tough time trying to, um, you know, be accepted, trying to blend in. Yeah. So... It was a difficult period. I remember at school being called names and even I think in Beijing nowadays they, they you know, they sort of know something about it and they make a bit of a joke out of it. But uh, you can make a bit of a joke of it now, but uh, mm. at the time it was a bit difficult.
0: So you go to school in Melbourne and even though you're an artist now, I understand that you actually studied music first. So where did that come from and how did you then decide, oh, I want to do art instead of music?
1: Well, it was a long road because I, my father actually, I think I used the word suggested, I do economics too, you know. I think suggested <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the softest, soft-treading word. So I, I enrolled in... Uh, Economics at New England University up in Armidale, Mm. and in fact, I did pure maths one A. Eventually got uh, moved up the scale, and that's where actually where I uh, discovered uh, sculpture. You know, because we were inverting forms using formula and stuff like that. There was a Uh bit of program there too. But what uh, I dropped out after second year because I failed accountancy two years running. They wouldn't let me change. I I said to them, I'll do ancient history, I'll do psychology, I'll do anything, you know. But no, because I was under a teacher's scholarship bond, it had to be accountancy. So eventually I thought, well, there's no way I'm I'm not going to pass. I failed at two years running, so I'm not going to, you know, pass it again because it's obviously not in my nature. (laughs) (laughs) So I I left. And then my parents had already, he was studying in Japan and, took the rest of the family and they left me, you know, in charge of my studies. And obviously I didn't do a very good job because uh, I found myself in Tamworth and I started really getting interested, because we're talking about uh, the late, very late 60s, 68, 69, which was, you know, a great period for uh, pop music, you know, with the Hendrix, uh, that sort of generation of music, so it absolutely well, it's inspired me. You know, I mean, uh, my whole life was coloured by uh, that popular culture. You know, so I became, uh, I think, a lighting t- a lighting designer for a, a local band, and eventually uh, I moved to Tamworth, uh, which is the next biggest town after Armidale, and, and I got a job. Uh, in, doing the interior of a, uh, well, what's called a discotheque then, you know, it's like yes. a, a, a night <laughs> nightclub. So that, I was paid a weekly wage to uh, convert this old capital Theatre to make it a young person's, uh, you know, nightclub. <laughs> and and was, so was, you
0: were doing lighting th- at the time?
1: Yeah, I was actually... I think Alice D. Fogg was the big influence, you know, at the time. So, you know, I used Egg and Tempera and all kinds of mixtures with slide projectors and get animation and movement using, you know, different kinds of fluid media. And that's the way it started. But And I didn't really play much music other than, you know, having the odd strum on the guitar when I was had some spare time. But eventually I went to... Uh, to learn, I went to the conservatorium, and uh, someone gave me a a bass guitar in pieces, and I ma- managed to put it together. You know, learning about harmonics and everything, and I started to get interested. So I did, uh, even though I'm not very good at reading music. Still, you know, I think like my Mandarin, reading music is kind of a bit stubborn. You know, in mm. <laughs> in, in being smooth. So I studied theory and arrangement at the conservatorium in Sydney and started to play in garage bands and such like until I went to Adelaide where I, I actually I bought my first house there. It was so cheap. And uh, But when I got to Adelaide, I, was, I didn't know what to do. You know, so I washed dishes and stuff like that until one day I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll try and join a band, you know. So the band I eventually joined, we were together for something like five years. So it's uh, technically it's the first my first professional source of income. Yeah.
0: And so you you've joined a band, but where did the art come in?
1: Well, I did a bit of art, you know, signwriting and stuff on the side, but uh, I, because I couldn't get any other job, I, I thought I'd try the art school in uh, the South Australian School of Art, and they. They accepted me. I went in and I started off with printmaking and painting, and then eventually, in second year, I started to find my way with ceramics. You know, so I, I actually the ceramics I took on very seriously and did it for something like seventeen years as a uh, well, as a profession. You know, as a vocation. So I actually had a stage where, I, of course, I taught ceramics uh, at universities and stuff later on. But at the time, I cut my teeth uh, selling things like casseroles and mugs and stuff like that, you know, throwing them and going around to the shops, to galleries, and trying to make ends meet <laughs>
0: so when it was it when you were at art school in south australia then that you decided okay this is going to be my vacation i don't think i'm going to do music and i'm going to forge a career as an artist and and did you what was your plan at the time did you immediately think that's it i'm going to do it, ceramics is my thing
1: well yeah, in a way valerie was was a kind of a obsession all of a sudden actually it was my then my first wife we're not together anymore but she thought while i was doing my art school printmaking whatever she'd uh, hire a pottery wheel take it home and start her own hobby you know and i started helping her and when i picked her up from the night classes i stayed and eventually uh, i came a bit earlier and i thought this is very fascinating you know glaze technology all that sort of thing and it had me spitting, so the following, that semester, I, I swapped my major to ceramics. And, uh, you know, I think the, the whole, I enjoyed it very much. I, I think I was very good at it, you know, throwing, and the design, I think I, I still regard that ceramics was really the uh, anchor for me in terms of uh, working out the I suppose, design alphabet, you know, Mm. and in a way, although I work with uh, mostly with 3D now, quite often I I can see the link between making a decision when you add handles or, you know, decide on some element of symmetry that that the same kind of issues I still think about. So, yeah, there's a connection.
0: So you started off in ceramics, and now you've, you, as you say, you you you're doing a lot in three D now. And your work has been in museums all over the world, and also commissions from major galleries and um, and companies and private collections. Um, how would you describe uh, uh, beyond just saying it's in three D? How would you describe your artwork these days, and what inspires the thought processes? behind the artworks
1: well that's a very good question Valerie <laughs> well very well put too um, well when I say I have a link with the ceramics it's the, I think the original uh, motivation or a, a strong motivation has always been because I'm Chinese and there's no really apart from the way I, I look there's no real visible uh, uh, elements you know I'm not I can't speak the language I was I, I really didn't come to China until it was well into my 30s. Mm. So it, it's only uh, hearsay and, you know, I've been everywhere else but not in China. But uh, when I did the ceramics, I actually linked with the uh, oriental ceramics and, you know, the, the whole idea of the, the aesthetics of uh, – of uh, it's a kind of, I think one could call it accidentalism, you know. It's like – like, the accidental uh, process that one would go through just making intuitive intuitive decisions in art, you know. So mm. accidents actually become uh, uh, valued uh, outcomes, you know. Mm. And so the 3D was actually, it was a gradual process, but I've been using the same 3D, I suppose, framework since the mid-90s or early 90s, so it's like almost uh, 20, 25 years that I've, I've used the same thing. And by the way, over the years, I've changed my um, medium, let's go. Let's say, quite a lot. You know, each one lasting quite a bit, like painting maybe 10 or 12 years, but ceramics was 17 years. Yes. So this 3D now is... Getting to 2050 years, so this is the longest. But the thing is 3D covers so much, you know. Yes. It covers the, the narrative of space, like architecture. It's, uh, you know, like I'm doing a bit of furniture design now. Um, and there's a lot of storytelling when it comes to uh, designing form or, uh, you know, just... Even lighting, space, uh, and even music. I'm I'm starting to use music now because that is almost like an an element in animation that is intrinsic to uh, you know to telling the story. I suppose. Mm. As you could put
0: it. So the um, the lantern that uh, you've designed for the Sydney Lunar Festival is the ox, and it's it's awesome. Um, I, I, it, for me to describe it probably won't do it justice, so I'm going to let you describe what the ox is like and the colours, and um, and of course we'll have images in the show notes that people can see. Um, yeah. But if you can describe it, what it what it looks like, and also the thought process behind that, like what inspired you to create that particular ox lantern?
1: Well, the interesting thing is the ox itself as a mythological, you know, figure, creature, because uh, in in Chinese uh, uh, heritage, the ox is seen as a, you know, agricultural uh, anchor, you know, it sort of supports the whole thing, you know, can move mountains, as it were, you know, in terms of food production or moving land, and in traditional myth- mythology, sort of, I mean, we don't know the ox as being strong, you know, so it's basically, uh, it ha- has intellectual will overcoming uh, bodily strength and, in a way, uh, temptations and uh, and other, you know, w- weaknesses of the spirit, physical urges, shall we say. So that's to me when when I first approach uh, the ox as a symbol. Well, those elements came up first, you know. Like uh, um, of course there are many other qualities, uh, but and in this case the ox sort of emanates from a wave or a rock, you know. So mm-hmm. it's actually uh, coming out of out of the earth in a sense. But the wave I've used. Previously, um, in Chinese uh, figuration symbols, there are scholar scholar rocks or philosophical philosophers rocks in gardens, and you you know you see some in Sydney. Large rock, natural rocks that are you know aren't not carved or anything; they just found like that, and they they're appreciated for their natural beauty. There, you know, the curves, the texture, patterning and so uh, i suppose it's called a scholar rock because it encapsulates uh, natural uh, beauty and natural as- aesthetic as read by i suppose an intellect you know something like that mm-hmm. so the wave is actually comes from that uh, tradition in fact i've been using uh in beijing i used to, i'm still collecting uh, traditional toys when i say traditional not that traditional maybe 10, 20 years old when there were these plastic uh, wind-up toys, which you can no longer get. You know, mm-hmm. uh, well, the ones I bought all had because uh, there's Chinglish always with them, and they're called happy toys. You know, yes. <laughs> but the, on one of them there is a dolphin that, which is a, another uh, heritage emblem, the dolphin coming up with a wave under it. So mm-hmm. the basically substituted the ox for the dolphin, and it looks like, uh, you know, the dolphin, uh, the ox emanates from a scholar rock in the shape of a wave. So it has Chinese customs sort of entwined in in the uh, symbology
0: I love it, and it is a very imposing lantern, and I think people are going to um, love it, and it's going to be very heavily Instagrammed. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> now, you are, you work out of Beijing, Las Vegas, and Wollongong. Now, they are three cities that you would not normally have in the same sentence. No. People wouldn't normally associate them together. Tell us why, why those three cities.
1: You know, it not an easy matter to say exactly, you know, like like an equation or like a recipe <laughs> this or like a piece of music, you know, with the G flat is in there because of a, a you know, this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. They all came by accident, you know. Uh, I remember Beijing, I was teaching for a private institute of technology in Sydney and they were going to set up a school in Beijing, like a subsidiary. Mm-hmm. And then they were setting up one, one in Mumbai. I said, oh, Beijing, oh, I'm interested to have a look. You know, it's just like a. I had been in China before, but I was curious enough to, you know, I suppose stick my hand up and say, well, you know, I, I can help somewhere do something. So I thought get a studio and be on the ground there and be off uh, assistance when it comes to uh, setting up a new course or a new school. So that's how that started, you know. But um,
0: but you go to Beijing and and because prior to that had you did you speak Mandarin?
1: No, I don't. I mean, I have an interest. I I, yeah. I like listening to it, but I you know I think my brain is too fully occupied with other stuff like music.
0: What was it like? What was it like though? Going to Beijing with did people have an expectation of you to speak Mandarin, and then did they? And how, what was their reaction, positive or negative, when they discovered that you couldn't?
1: Well, I suppose I first stumbled on that, uh, the thing you mentioned, the the, the, the dilemma, I suppose. Mm. When I first came to China, that was 1987, I went to uh, Guangzhou and to Changsha, where Mao was born. Mm. Uh, And that's where I noticed it first, you know, because... uh, and it's the first time I had set foot in China. So the whole thing, all the uh, uh, statues, the whole thing was uh, the bicycles, everything to me was uh, had a great mystique and depth. And what I found was the, the people, they looked at me the that's just my fond memory looking back. They looked at me as a brother, but the fact that I couldn't speak it, you know, is, uh, was an interesting thing. I mean, looking at it lately, I mean, sometimes I go in a restaurant with maybe an American and an Australian, mm. and uh, that maybe two scholars, Chinese scholars, you know, and both of them, they might be, you know, Caucasian or something, yeah. but uh, they both speak fluent Mandarin, and, uh, you know, I stumble around in, standing in the middle of it, and the waitress in the restaurant looks at me and, you know what uh, you know she's expecting me to say more you know, Yes, she's but, confused <laughs> yeah and then she, you know, also it's a, a great expectation what's the matter with you why why aren't you uh, you know in the forefront so yeah. it's kind of interesting uh, I mean I have a lot of friends in uh, in Beijing and in China in general and I think there is a a, a, a bond or a understanding something about the even though i didn't i wasn't born there i didn't go through the cultural revolution and there's much i don't understand you know Uh, i mean mandarin and chinese in general has such philosophical depth you know Mm. it it intrigues me and i study it and i use it in my work a lot but unlike people that have gone through the revolution and studied the language and the philosophy throughout their lives you know I'm, I'm i'm like a baby in the woods really but you know I've been uh, curated in a lot of exhibitions by well-known curators in China and I think what they saw was uh, a a different um, outlook in the way I used language or the way I interpreted, you know, what I observed.
0: All right. So how then did Vegas come about?
1: (laughs) Well, that's an interesting one too because, uh, you know, the thing is, what I haven't mentioned so far, is I've always been fascinated by toys, you know.
0: Yes.
1: And in, in particular, souvenirs. And that, that was it. early to mid-90s. I was working on a thesis uh, which was called the Mass Customization of Cultural Identity. In other words, souvenirs, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went to Hawaii and, thinking, oh, this will be a great place for souvenirs, and I was bitterly disappointed, you know. I think I bought two tin, science fiction, tin toys made in China, battery operated, but all the uh, all the souvenirs in Hawaii were just bitterly, disapp- I was disappointed. and I, okay. And for a while there I thought, you know, why do places have such poorly made, poorly thought out, poorly designed souvenirs when, you know, most of us travellers just long to have buy something that we can take with us to mark, you mark the occasion or remember the place by, and overall it was quite disappointing. And of course now, uh, I gave then I gave a talk about that, um, and it was actually at the at a conference presented by University of Nevada Reno, in Montreal, and the woman who uh, gave a talk before me and heard me speak is Felicia Campbell, who's a professor of English at UNLV uh, in Las Vegas, you know, the university here. And then she said later on, have you been to Vegas? I said, no, I haven't. I've seen movies and everything else. And she said, why don't you come with me? I'll show you around. And, of course, when I came here, I was totally flabbergasted, and I changed my thesis to then I called it the architecture of risk, you know. I actually, uh, over the think I think on my doctorate the thesis took seven and a half years to complete i was threatened with being kicked out towards the end of it because i took so long but i did something like 44 project instead 44 projects instead of three or four mm-hmm. and uh, uh one of the things we did was actually set up a booth at the world gaming expo and, and congress which is like a you know like a Uh, yeah, not a conference, a uh, convention for industrial uh, gaming, both suppliers and whatever else. So, you know, uh, our booth the booth was partly uh, sponsored by the University of California Davis, where I was teaching for a while, Mm -hmm. and the University of Western Sydney, I was teaching in the School of Design there. So, we had a lot of animation, we had a game design um, it was quite intense you know so it was uh, the most industrialized few years of my sculptural and, and 3D experience. So we got quite a bit of work actually from various casinos and particularly uh, a floating casino and Atlantic City it was very interested in what we what we did. So that was I finished when I finished my doctorate in '05, I, that's when I moved to Beijing, and I, I basically closed the chapter on uh, Vegas. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Beijing, but then uh, I had a, my first solo show in U.S. was in New York, you know, in uh, Lower East Side, mm-hmm. and all the work I had been making in Beijing I shipped to uh, to the U.S. and after I had about something like thirteen exhibitions, you know, various ones, some small, some only you know, single pieces and art fairs, but I had a problem with storage. And before, when I had the project in Vegas, I used U-Haul storage, which was not a, not cheap, you know. It was like 90 bucks a, uh, a month for uh, like a small, you know, s- square, uh, 50 square, not even 50, I think 30 square foot of space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, this time I thought I'm, I have to do something different. So guess what? It was a recession in the housing market, and I ended up buying. I thought I'd try and buy a house and use the garage for a storage. <laughs> and here, here I am, you know, seven years later, I've got. Oh my now, goodness! <laughs> it's now become a studio because I managed to keep all the work in circulation and exhibitions all around the place. You know, so all the big ones are out being exhibited, and I love being here. It's, it's, you know, when you ask why the three places. Sometimes it's not easy to answer that, especially Vegas. A lot of people don't understand why Vegas, because I could have easily, at the time, Miami was in contention because I had some uh, exhibitions with the, you know, art fairs there, mm-hmm. and Queens, which is probably the cheapest of the, uh, you know, around New York. But but I, I was lucky. Uh, Miami suffered some, both Miami and Queens suffered, uh, you know, typhoons and mm. terrible uh, damage from uh, weather and stuff. So it was Vegas. So, well, uh, I, I, I
0: get it. I love Vegas. But but when oh. you're in, in Sydney, when you're in Australia, why Wollongong?
1: Well, actually, in years gone by, I used to move to a city when I was offered a job there. And that was a perfect example. I was offered a job at the University of Wollongong. And I was there, I was only there five years. And at the end of it, uh, when the contract ended, I thought, oh, well, let's go back to Sydney. Uh, And I think one weekend I started driving around the northern suburbs and I thought, hell, this is, I never had time to, you know, look around Wollongong until towards the end of my contract. And I thought, this is about as good as any, you know, (laughs) but at, at the time. It wasn't very popular because the coal mining was still rampant and there were, you know, empty, full and empty coal trucks, semi-trailers going up and down the highway. So it was very unpopular at the time, you know, but I thought I, I could see something there. And that was about 90, 90, uh, 91, I think. So I've been in Wollongong since 91. Oh, but since 87 when I started teaching, but... Uh, I've lived there as a, without having a job there since 91, so that's what, 27 years ago, right?
0: So let me guess, you bought a house with a garage there as well. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> well, I, but the garage was only, like it was a, a minor shack, you know, it was really yeah. terrible, it's all I could afford. But, uh, and, you know, the luck in my life is uh, because one, Wollongong has been a big part of it, because We've watched the uh, environment change and grow, and I've managed to be lucky enough to uh, change addresses at the right time and at the right place. So we have a lovely place in uh, Wollongong, and its I don't think it's, you could beat it. I mean, unless you had, you know, a lot of money and moved to Bronte or somewhere like that.
0: <laughs> now, are there many Chinese customs or traditions that you incorporate in your life these days? Obviously, well, yeah. I presumably while you're in Beijing, it just surrounds you, but, but uh, you know, when when you're not there in particular.
1: Yeah, because I'll, in a way, Valerie, I've done it so I'm still reading about it. Um, I've got a couple of books here I'm reading about, still reading about uh, Chinese idioms, chung yu's, you know, and I've got an architectural project which deals with that. In fact... I'm working with a factory, furniture factory in Beijing, or then now closer to Tianjin in China. And what we're doing, what I'm doing, is actually uh, designing contemporary. I think I call them form rather than furniture or sculpture. Contemporary form based on Chinese heritage. So the difficulty with heritage is because so much stuff is well known. And a lot of it becomes a little bit cliché, you know, like it's hard to come, kind of come up with uh, like good luck symbols and turn it into something that's uh, different or inventive. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, that's the, the hard part. It's easy to describe it, but when it comes down to brass tacks, to come up with something that actually is, you know, worth spending time on or people worth seeing it or even, uh, you know, buying it mm-hmm. or exhibiting it, that's the challenge. So, but yes, heritage customs is uh, still something, you know, and the whole thing about language, uh, the, you know, graphic design of characters. I don't know. Do, do you speak Mandarin?
0: No, I don't. But do, right. do you speak Dutch and Indonesian?
1: Well, some, you know, it's got, it got very rusty because <laughs> yes. uh, I, I remember when I went to Dutch uh, to Holland. Uh, and I tried to speak Dutch. I, I, in fact, my French is a better than uh, than my Dutch because I actually studied French at school. And when I had my residency there, I, I was forced to, because they wouldn't speak English, the French. So actually, and I, I find a lot of uh, in common between French and Chinese, actually, you know, like the, uh, the, the shapes of, of uh, sounds and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think like language has become like uh, i suppose a bit like music, you know like uh, color it's like um, color nuances and and mm. yeah, so
0: it's- have there been any instances not in your adult life, so don 't worry about you know when you were a child growing up, but have there been any instances where your cultural heritage has been? either an asset or a hindrance, or or has it not made any difference in the opportunities that you've been given or missed out
1: on? Uh, um, well, I suppose if it has, I haven't really, it doesn't concern me anymore. I yeah, think, uh, that's… It's, it's, like, not my problem, you know? yeah. yeah.
0: Now, in terms of your creative output, you're pretty busy and you are doing a lot in, um, you know, three different countries. What still excites you? What excites you about creating the art that you do? What actually makes you get that feeling of anticipation?
1: Hmm, That's interesting. At the moment, I suppose what qualifies... Uh, there is, I think, music. Actually, I'm, I'm so far. I'm looking at uh, synthesizing music and making soundtracks, and it's the first time I've accepted music as being an equal to, you know, to the visual world. In in, in the past, I haven't been able to like uh, come to terms with it in such a way, you know. So I, I'm I'm sort of more relaxed. I'm not hard on myself and say, oh, you know, you're you're not a virtuoso, you're not technically brilliant, you know. So it doesn't matter, you know. It just has to fit in with whatever else visual that I'm doing. That's one thing. But the other thing is uh, just moving around itself is like – and now this is the first year I've actually planned the year out. So I know I'm going to be five months in Beijing, more or less. Mm. Four months in uh, Vegas and three months in Australia, you know. So, and I'll vary next year. Well, until I can't do it anymore, you know. I think I'm. It keeps me young on the one hand, but I'm wondering, you know, I'm sixty-eight. How long can you do this for, you know? Oh, actually, I've been watching uh, In Memoriam on YouTube and watching they have all these collections of, you know, who did we lose? Lose December two thousand eighteen out of all the film directors and. Mm -hmm. Uh, celebrities and everybody, and they give you the cause of death and what age and what they did and blah, blah, blah. So as I get older, I'm also conscious of, um, you know, how much one can still do and how much creativity. And I met lately, I met two or three people who are roughly my age who feel that this is finally the period in their life when they f- feel most vital, you know, they, yes. uh, their best work is starting to come out. And some of them, like I met one last night, is Jim Stanford, who's a Las Vegas artist. And he was saying to me, uh, it took me all these years to collect all the ideas and to get energies and whatever traveling around. And now I can, I can happily uh, compose them, you know. And I, I think that's also how I feel.
0: Lawrence, you're obviously in your prime then. So on a final note then, what are you most looking forward to in the year of the pig? Uh,
1: Well, I have to preempt by saying lucky to be alive. I just, you know, I would love to have the good. I still smoke and I don't exercise enough Really, Those two things I have to fix. But I'm very active and, you know, um, I'm coming to Sydney next week and I uh, probably go to Hong Kong in March to have a look at the art. So I'm actually have to prepare myself and probably my, my head and my body for what's to come, you know. And so, this being the first year that I can plan ahead, I have to actually uh, measure my steps, you know, to make sure that uh, I go through the year without too much stress or strenuous overdoing things
0: (laughs) i'm sure you'll be fine and congratulations on the ox lantern it's amazing and i know that people are absolutely going to love it thank you so much for your time today lawrence
1: thank you valerie
0: i hope you enjoyed my chat with lawrence and i'm sure you'll enjoy checking out the ox lantern that he's designed which brings me to why do we have lanterns during lunar new year anyway traditionally the festive period for lunar new year is 15 days And the 15th day is known as the Lantern Festival, indicating the end of the festival period. In some parts of Asia, little kids carry around little lanterns during Lunar New Year. I remember doing that when I was a child in Singapore. One legend is that once upon a time, someone in a village accidentally killed a god's favourite bird, a celestial crane. Of course, the god was cranky and asked his soldiers to set fire to the village on the 15th day of the new year. But one of the gods' daughters couldn't bear to see that happen and went to warn the villagers. The villagers hung up lanterns and lit firecrackers to make the army think that the village was already burning down and apparently it worked and the village was not destroyed. So the use of lanterns for decoration and for actual lighting is something you'll see a lot of during Lunar New Year. Some of them are very intricate and elaborate, and others, like the innovative ones lining Sydney Harbour at Circular Quay during this period, are iconic art installations, and I hope you enjoy checking them out. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo, and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com, that's K-H-O-O. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with future episodes, go to newsstories.net.au.